There is, whoa. Now, there we go. All right. Okay, so back to my story I was telling. This legend about Jesus after his ascension. And he's met by the angel Gabriel who asked him, so what happens next, Lord? What's the plan? And Jesus says, well, I recruited some men who followed me around while I was on earth doing the Father's will. And Gabriel says, oh, I, I know all about them, uh, the, the fishermen, the tax collector, the revolutionary. Yeah, what about them? And Jesus says, well, I taught them about the kingdom of God. I taught them about faith and prayer. They were with me while I performed miracles. They watched and listened as I taught the multitudes. And now I've prepared them, they're going to take over and they're going to carry on my work now. There's a long pause. And finally, Gabriel says, so what's the backup plan? And Jesus says, there isn't one. I'm depending on them. If you're recruiting a group of people to alter the course of history, what type of people would you select? How would you begin going about that? Jesus began by taking a walk around the lake and finding some fishermen out in their boats and saying, come and follow me. That's how his uncommon mission with the 12 apostles begin. 12 of the most common men that you could ever hope to find. They were all perfectly ordinary, completely unexceptional people. And in fact, when you put them together in a group, they were almost more like misfits collectively. It's not a perfect comparison because the numbers don't exactly line up, but I think of I think of the castaways on the show Gilligan's Island. Remember that one? And seven people there who were all completely different and all kind of weird in their own way and they're all stranded there together. That's what the 12 are like. This volatile mix of people who are completely different from one another. You know, you think about the people that we might choose if we were in Jesus' position. Maybe we'd go first to the intellectuals, scholars, the theologians, the best educated minds who could unfold the scriptures to people. 
I, I confess, if I was picking this group, I'd want to try to find the sharpest people I could. But maybe that's not exactly the way your brain works. So maybe we would go and we would pick uh, the powerful, you know, the wealthy, the well-connected, those who might be able to grease the wheels of his ministry, so to speak. Or if we put it in modern-day terms, certainly we want to go and find people who were masters of public relations, people who could market Jesus' ministry, whatever the first century equivalent uh, was of someone who knows about social media. You know, we want this uh, whole Jesus thing to go viral. We want everybody to find out about it. That's how human wisdom works. But that's not what Jesus did. When he chose the twelve, men who would deliver his message, men who were invested with his authority, the men who, as we said, he was depending on, he was counting on. He didn't choose a single rabbi. He didn't choose a single scribe, so, so much for the best educated. He didn't choose a single Sadducee. He didn't choose a priest, so much for the well-connected and the powerful. None of these 12 men came from the religious establishment. And that was all part of Jesus' plan. He wasn't looking for extraordinary talent, though I'm certain that he saw the raw potential in each one of them. Uh, that stuff that he could take and bring out and highlight if he was able to work with them. And he wasn't looking for extraordinary religiosity, great piety, you know, part of the establishment, even though each and every one of these men was a faithful and devout Jew. He wanted ordinary people, regular, everyday people, people with hopes and dreams and lives of their own, but people who were willing to leave all of that behind and to follow him. He wanted people, people like us, people like you, people like me, as Abraham Lincoln supposedly said, though there's no evidence Lincoln said it, but we're going to attribute it to him anyway, God must have loved the common man. He made so many of them. Jesus certainly demonstrates that. And so it's unfortunate that we often put these men up on a pedestal. You know, if any of you have ever gone and, and seen some of the great cathedrals of Europe, you see these men glorified where we get the impression that they're all stained glass saints with halos glowing behind them. Or else they're superhuman figures who are carved there literally in stone and raised up literally on a pedestal. To treat these men as if they're super saints dehumanizes them. That's not who they were. They were 12 perfectly ordinary men, completely human in every way, and we must not lose sight of that fact. In fact, it seems almost as if Jesus chose them precisely because of their commonness, their ordinariness. 
what qualified these men to be his apostles anyway? And to answer that, we need to take a step back and understand exactly what an apostle is. Now, we know that Jesus was followed around from the very beginning by multitudes, by crowds. We can read about that in all of the gospel accounts. There were people going with him from place to place. And we know that from the very beginning, at least some of the 12 were part of that group. In John chapter 1, uh, we read about Andrew and John. John the Baptist points Jesus out to them, and they go and they spend the day with him. And then Andrew goes and gets Peter and introduces him to Jesus. So from the beginning, at least some of these 12 were in that crowd, that multitude that followed Jesus. But from out of those crowds, Jesus called some to be his disciples. That is, he called them to leave everything behind and to follow him around full time, to be his students on a regular basis. That's what we see with the scene I alluded to earlier, the, the mending the nets when Jesus is by the seashore and he says to the fishermen, to, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, come and to follow me. That's what's going on there, calling them to be his students full time. This was something that was common in both uh, Greek culture and in Jewish culture, whether we're talking about rabbis or whether we're talking about philosophers. Uh, great teachers didn't normally use a, a classroom they taught from daily life. So they would go around from place to place and they would just teach as the opportunity presented itself from common scenes or as people asked them questions. And their students would follow them about. Jesus had a lot of these disciples. We know he had at least 70 of them, right? Because he sent those 70 out on a mission at one point. And he probably had even more than that. But it's from this smaller group, you know, the crowds, the disciples, now narrowing it down even further, from this group of disciples that he chose the 12 apostles. Mark's account was read earlier, but from Luke's account, he makes this explicit. Luke chapter 6 and verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And then it has the list of names that we read earlier. So out of his disciples, a larger group, he chooses these 12 apostles. Apostle literally means one who is sent out. You probably know that. But we shouldn't confuse this with simply a messenger. There are other words in Greek that could convey that idea of being a messenger. Apostle is someone who is invested with authority. We could translate it as ambassador or delegate. It's an official representative of the person who's sending them out on this mission. So in other words, when Jesus chooses these 12 men, he says, these are his official representatives. When they speak, they speak with his authority. When they deliver a message, it's his message that they're delivering. So we ask again, why these 12? It wasn't because of any intrinsic traits that they shared. I already mentioned some of the things that they weren't. They weren't scholars. They weren't well-connected or powerful. They were all, or at least almost all, Galileans. 
They weren't from Judea, let alone from Jerusalem, which was the seat of power. And Judeans looked down on Galileans. Galilee was a largely rural area. Its population was largely uneducated. In other words, these were hicks from the sticks. That's the way everybody thought about them. And then consider these men, not just as a group, but individually in more detail. And they were a motley crew. You have Peter, for example, the leader of the apostles. The man with a foot-shaped mouth. Brash, impetuous, always speaking before he thinks his mouth gets ahead of his brain and it gets him into trouble. Or there's Judas, the man who held the checkbook and managed to skim a little bit off the top for himself from time to time. Or my favorite pairing of apostles, Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Now consider the contrast between these two men. Matthew is a tax collector. So he is viewed as a collaborator with the Roman government. That's who he's collecting taxes for. He's a traitor to his country. There is a reason that when you see in the New Testament sinners and publicans, the tax collectors, they're lumped there together because that's the way they thought of them, sometimes with uh, the prostitutes. These were the lowest of the low, not welcome in polite society. Simon is a zealot. The zealots were tax protesters. That's the entire reason that the zealot party was founded. In A.D. 6, the Roman governor, a man named Quirinius, wanted to level a head tax, a poll tax. He was taking a census. And a fellow named Judas the Galilean rebelled against that and said that, no, they owed taxes only to God. He was their ruler. They wouldn't pay the Romans. And that's how the zealot movement started. So Matthew is a tax collector. Simon is a tax protester. He's not a collaborator. He's a revolutionary. He wants to overthrow the government. Matthew was wealthy. You might imagine that most tax collectors got wealthy, and we have a good indication Matthew was anyway, because at one point he throws a big banquet for Jesus and some others. Simon was probably about as poor as it gets. Most people in Palestine were poor, and you can imagine that most foot soldiers and revolutions like that tended to be the poorest of the poor. Matthew earned his money overcharging people just like Simon. That's how he got so wealthy. Simon, on the other hand, lived to eliminate people just like Matthew. It hadn't happened yet, but within just a couple of decades, the 50s into the 60s, the zealots would produce a, a subset that was even more radical called the Sicarii, the Daggermen. That is, people who would go around with long knives hidden under their uh, clothes, and at large crowds, at festivals or the like, they would assassinate Romans or their collaborators, people just like Matthew, and then they'd disperse into the crowd so that they wouldn't be caught. Now, that hadn't happened yet, but Simon had that sort of mindset. So you think about these two men. I mentioned... Uh, Gilligan's Island before, but if you wanted to compare this to a TV show or movie, this is the odd couple, all right? Simon and, and Matthew. They have much more to put them at odds than any two people you could probably imagine. And yet the two of them, just like all the rest, 
worked together, cooperated in Jesus' mission. So Jesus chose 12 people from what we would probably consider to be the unworthy, the unqualified. They were just like James writes about the prophet Elijah, men just like us, men with a nature like ours. You see, they didn't become useful because they were somehow different, because they were made of better stuff in any sort of way. Their usefulness was solely the result of the work of the potter, molding them and shaping them and forming them into what he intended them to be. God chooses the meek and the lowly and the humble, the ordinary, so that there's never any question about the source of power. It's not the person. It's the power and the truth of God that they're carrying and that they represent. It's the treasure in earthen vessels or in jars of clay. That's the way the Apostle Paul put it. A lot of preachers would do well to remember that. It's not about them. A lot of churches would do well to remember that and not put their preacher up on a pedestal. There's nothing special about them. And so, because these men weren't anything special, they needed to be molded. The time was short. I mentioned that uh, winnowing down here from crowds to disciples to apostles. Uh, there's no way to be sure because of the uncertain chronology of the gospel accounts, but some have estimated that maybe as much as a, a year and a half of Jesus' ministry had gone by before he designates these apostles. We don't know for sure, but let's say they've got a year and a half, two years left. They've already left their lives and their vocations to follow him. Everything that they've known, their, their families, they've left behind their boats and their nets, they've left behind their uh, tax-collecting tables left what's familiar to go out and to be trained in something that they had no natural aptitude for. And that learning process was very difficult for the apostles for a number of reasons. Uh, for one thing, they lacked spiritual understanding. They were slow to hear. They were slow to understand. There's a reason that these guys were not scholars. Thick, dull, stupid, blind. Those are all words that the New Testament uses at different points to describe these 12 men. How did Jesus deal with that? He kept teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. Even after his resurrection, that 40-day period before his ascension, he continued to teach them about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. They also lacked humility. They were self-centered, self-absorbed, self-promoting. They were proud. And maybe you're thinking at this point, well, they do sound a lot like preachers. They've got it what it takes. That's a joke. They spent a lot of time arguing about who was going to be the greatest among them, right? We all remember that. I want to sit on the right hand of the Lord. No, I want to do it. Well, how did Jesus overcome that lack of humility? By being an example to them. 
by modeling humility, by washing their feet, the most menial task that anyone could possibly do, by becoming obedient even to death, humbling himself to dying on the cross. They also, thirdly, lacked faith. Four times in Matthew's gospel account alone, Jesus chides them, O you of little faith. That's to say nothing of where it comes up in the other accounts. What remedy did Jesus have for their lack of faith? He kept performing signs and wonders. See, the miracles weren't just for the benefit of unbelievers. They were for their benefit too. John chapter 20 and verse 30 talks about the fact that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Why did he do them in the presence of his disciples? To confirm who he was, to build up their faith, to strengthen them. These are the men who Jesus chose to go out and to change the world. He gave them this important task. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They were to be, as we said earlier, his delegates, his ambassadors. They were invested with his authority. And we look at these men and we wonder, why? Why would he choose men who lacked spiritual understanding? Men who lacked humility. Men who lacked faith. I think we find the answer to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Paul writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, no one would ever look at this group of men and conclude, that it was about them. There's no explanation for the apostles except for the action of God alone. I think of Acts chapter 4 in verse 13 when Peter and John are standing there before the Sanhedrin and they answer them back and it says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uneducated and common. Uneducated, literally illiterate. Common, the word there, the Greek word is idiotes. That's where we get our word idiot from. In the Greek, that conveys something more like them being ignorant than what we think of with an idiot. Although I still wouldn't call that complimentary. They're illiterate ignoramuses. And so, in other words, when they saw their boldness, when they saw the way that they handled Scripture, the way that they answered, and they saw that (laughs) these are some illiterate ignoramuses, they knew 
that they had been with Jesus. That's what made the difference. The apostles' training bore eternal fruit. And for a while, it looked like that might not be the case. You remember after Jesus' death, for a time they were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. But what we find in the book of Acts, as in chapter 4 there, doing the work that they were called to do, being witnesses as Jesus called them to, they turned the world upside down. And the whole point, not only of this lesson, but we're about to study each one of these men and their lives over the next several weeks. If God can transform people like this and use, him, use them to do his will, what can he do with ordinary people like us? Maybe you're here tonight and you haven't been allowing God to work in you, to work through you in the way that you ought. Maybe there's some change you need to make in your life in order to get back in a right relationship with him. If that's the case, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.